This is episode 63 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Alois Kastner. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 63. Very quickly, happy birthday to Harry Houdini on your 147th birthday. And if I got the math wrong, too bad. <laughs> Trust me, he stopped counting a long time ago. Um, old Harry was born March 24th, 1874. If you're new to the podcast or this whole magic history thing, you can listen to podcast episodes five, six, seven, and quite frankly, many more to learn more about the life of Houdini. Also, uh, today marks the anniversary of the death of Cesario Palaez from the La Grande Vide Spectacular Magic Show. He passed away March 24th in 2012. And I did do a podcast for the La Grande David show, which is podcast number 44, if you want to check that out. Uh, last episode, I uh, shared with you a story from my own history, and I thought I'd start things off today with another one of those. And this is uh, another story from the archives of the Magic Detective. Uh, this happened in the early 1990s. I became president of the Northern Virginia chapter of the Society of American Magicians. It just so happened to be a group that I actually spearheaded years before and got the charter for and everything. I was the first president of the group. Their assembly, 252, if anybody's counting. And here I was in charge of the group again, got reelected, as they say. And one of the things that I always want to do with the with the, that mag, that particular magic club was have fun activities. Things like card trick night and rope night never really appealed to me, and yet that's what so many different magic clubs and assemblies were doing. So I always wanted to come up with something different. And I was sitting around um, one day with a, a group of fellow magicians from the club. And I happened to notice that one of the members kind of looked like Harry Blackstone Sr. And, and I, I'll be honest, I don't remember now if, if this whole thing was my idea or if he suggested it or what. But we concocted this plan to have him create a short, like five-minute tribute to Harry Blackstone Sr. So that, that's going on in the background. Keep that in mind. But I still had to come up with a meeting. So what I decided to do was invite my friend Nick Ruggiero from Collector's Workshop to come over and do a talk on his time with the Blackstone Show. Because in his younger years, he actually toured with a Blackstone Sr. He was in the show when uh, Adele was in the show. Um, George Johnstone was in the show. Del Rey was in the show all the same time that Nick was there. So I thought that would be fun. And then uh, then we had this, you know, Blackstone impersonation thing going on in the background. You know, how do we tie the two things together? So what I decided to do was, um, of course, we'd start the meeting and do our normal, 
you know, assembly nonsense that you have to do. And then uh, give a short introduction for Nick, but then interrupt it and say, um, you know, by the way, before Nick comes up, we have a special guest for one night only. And Nick knew nothing about this, by the way. And actually, most of the people in the Magic Club knew nothing about this. Um, so as soon as I said that, uh, my friend Gary Flesher, who was doing the Blackstone Senior Tribute Act, he comes out from the back. And, and I said, ladies and gentlemen, one night only, Harry Blackstone Sr. And like I said, he comes out from the back. He's wearing a full tuxedo. He's got his hair all puffed up like uh, like Harry Blackstone Sr. He's got the uh, little pencil mustache. And he's carrying a birdcage. And he walks down from the back of the audience, through the audience, right up to the stage area. And the look on Nick Ruggiero's face was priceless. Uh, I wish we would. Ha- I wish we had cell phone cameras back then because I would have recorded the entire thing. It was he. He had the look of, gosh, I mean, how do you describe it? It was part shock. <laughs> uh, it's like he saw a ghost, you know, and uh, bewilderment, confusion, and delight all in one thing. And of course, Gary, he hits his mark. And he's holding the birdcage and boom, the birdcage is gone and everybody's like loving that part of it. And then Gary began to speak and I think he did three routines. I believe he did the birdcage. I think he did the Afghan bands and then uh, I want to say he did like a six card repeat or something like that. And the just, oh my gosh, everyone just loved it. Uh, Gary that was doing Gary Flesher that was doing the, um, the impression just knocked it out of the park. The only thing I wish we had had before we did all this was a video of Blackstone senior. So we could have gotten his voice down. That was the one thing I didn't have. I eventually got one, but at the time didn't have one. So the voice was a little off, but everything else was spot on. Once we finished, uh, I introduced, uh, you know, let let Gary get a huge round of applause. He got a standing ovation for that. And then uh, brought Nick up. And Nick, just for the first few minutes, just couldn't... He could barely contain himself <laughs> from the shock of seeing uh, Mr. B, as he said. It was one of those moments you just, uh, you just cherish forever. And, and I swear that night, as, as uh, Nick talk to us about Blackstone Sr. and being in the Blackstone show and being part of the show. I think he spent most of the night just staring at Gary <laughs> because he, Gary looked just like Blackstone Sr. It was it was fabulous. I often wonder um, what uh, Nick told the uh, you know folks like Rich Block and the other fellows at Collector's Workshop. I often wonder what he shared with them about that night. Those were certainly good times. And uh, sadly, Nick is no longer with us. And my friend Gary, that did the wonderful Blackstone impersonation, is also no longer with us. But I remember them both fondly and glad that I could call them friends. And now it's time for our feature. Our featured entertainer today was born Alois Kastner, August 28, 1887, near Breslau. That same area today is considered part of Poland. 
He came upon magic in an unusual way. He was 10 years old and while walking to school one day, discovered a book on magic in a ditch. Well, he read this magic book and the magic bug hit hard because from there on out, magic was his thing. Years later, 67 years later, during an interview, he said this, I have never regretted being a magician in my life. For me, magic is not only a profession, but rather a vocation. And so I would vote for the same profession again in a brand new life at any time. His first shows were at 10 years of age in front of family and relatives, and each successive show led him to learn more and study more. Eventually, at the age of 15, he met a local magician and became an assistant and apprentice to this man. He also became part of the local magic clubs. No less than Chevalier Ernest Thorne sponsored him for membership. That friendship would play a part later in his career. In 1908, Kastner moved on his own to Hamburg, Germany. There he met a magician named Tasco, whose real name was Edward Janikin. He went to work for him for approximately two years and then went out on his own. Janikin was a competent magician, but not truly successful. Kastner learned the hardships of performance, but also how to perform in almost any situation. One thing that Kastner felt was missing was quality advertisements for his mentor. However, Janikin did not like that brash exposure. This was something that Kastner would correct in his own career when he went out on his own. During his life, he had the famed lithographer Friedlander produce up to 40 different posters for his shows. The Kastner posters are rich in vivid color and capture breathtaking images. It was around 1911 that he was out performing at small theaters, concert halls, and the like, and Dante mentions that he saw Castner perform during this period. He says that Castner did great business in the smaller towns, but had not yet moved up to the big cities. And there is something to be said for having a small, transportable show, but many magicians are not content with this and have their eyes upon bigger conquests. In 1918, Kastner met Erna Vendretti. She was the daughter of a very well-known magician. Erna was born in Berlin in 1899. By 1922, Kastner had gotten engaged to Erna, and the two were married in 1923. But prior to this, she became his chief assistant. And, as is often the case, the husband and wife learned a thought transmission routine that was later featured in their show. Now, the move to uh, take over the big cities began around 1920 and actually would involve his friend, Chevalier Ernest Thorne. You see, Thorne was the leading illusionist up until this time. But he decided to retire, and he sold Kastner his illusions and show properties so that Kastner could build out a show of his own with the type of entertainment the big cities required. Soon, the Kastner show grew not just in size and volume, but also in number of assistants. And I've stumbled over numbers like 5 and 15 and 20 cast members. And it doesn't surprise me. Thorne's original show was very heavy with bulky illusions. 
So now these would be the centerpieces for Kastner. But also, he needed a hook, and he had several up his sleeve. By the way, side note here, you should really listen to episode 41 of the podcast to learn more about Chevalier Ernest Thorne. Now, with this big purchase, Kastner now had a show of the size he would need to play the bigger theaters and venues in the larger cities. It was this shift that would take him from obscurity to a household name in Germany. He shifted his attention to the vaudeville theaters and began to work in that venue for a good many years. A letter from Axel Hellstrom confirms that Kastner was now doing strictly the cities at bigger venues. From the 1930 March issue of The Linking Ring, we have this. Kastner rates in prestige over there in Europe the same as Thurston does here in the States, and he's carrying a very heavy show. He plays the biggest cities and stays in each town at least a month, and in some cities he's had to stay for runs up to six months. He has a beautiful line of advertising matter and bills like a circus. Kastner is hopeful of playing the United States and has had lucrative offers. If you're wondering what was in the Kastner show, here's a description of the show. It goes like this. Kastner, who is billed as Europe's greatest magic review, begins with the production of birds from a giant dove pan, and from the same pan, a second production of rabbits takes place. The next item was a liquid trick. Water changes to beer, then to gin, to whiskey. There followed an exhibition of the nailed trunk or packing case. Kastner then transformed four boxes into a Chinese pagoda, from which two assistants in suitable costumes stepped out. A canary disappeared and was found in an electric bulb. The glass-lined trunk was shown. The next item was the disappearance of three doves. The birds were taken from a cage and placed in a dissected box. The birds reappear in the cage. We were offered the transposition of a watch and an alarm clock, each hanging on a stand on either side of the stage. A little cabinet was shown, empty, and numerous doves, rabbits, and chickens were produced. The disappearing gramophone was presented, and the well-known Indian sack trick was exhibited in a very clever manner. The seance was concluded by the floating lady, wherein the lady is at first partially covered by a shawl and then entirely covered. She disappears, as usual, in midair. This was immediately followed by Kastner's chief trick, the disappearance of 12 persons from the audience. This entire description is from The Magic Wand, volume 19, from 1930. This illusion of the disappearance of 12 people was patented by Kastner in 1927. In 1928, his closer was shooting a woman out of a cannon into a hanging nest of boxes. I have to say, reading about the vanishing of 12 people from the audience was a big shocker, as I thought this was a David Copperfield trick. But it just goes to prove that David Copperfield is a student of history and... It's why I do this podcast, so people can, you know, you can learn about history, what happened in the past, maybe get some inspiration from it, and maybe recreate something or or take an idea from the past and bring it into the future. I mean, that's ah, that's what magic history is all about. 
And uh, I honestly don't know what Kastner's method was, so I'm pretty sure David's method is unique to him. I mean, the man is a genius, and he's got a, a staff of geniuses, so I'm sure what they came up with was just brilliant and probably very different from Kastner's. But at the same time, it was wild to read about the effect happening oh so many years earlier. Now, the vanish of 12 people would also vanish itself in the 1930s. There was a famous circus impresario by the name of Saracini, who was also a friend of Castner's, and he made the suggestion of having something bigger than 12 people vanish. The conclusion, an elephant. The elephant vanish turned out to be a huge hit, and it made for a much more interesting poster. Kastner purchased a young elephant from a zoo in Hamburg. They named him Toto. He was less impressive than when he was first purchased because he was only five feet tall, but Toto would grow into a massive six-ton elephant. Apparently, Kastner got far more out of this actual illusion than Houdini ever did, though Houdini sure got his share of press and notoriety from it. Apparently, Kastner's vanish took place in a fully lit theater. His illusion was a sensation, as they featured the elephant vanish for 14 consecutive years. Kastner hired an elephant trainer to stay with Toto at all times. The mere sight of an elephant walking down the street was enough for people to want to attend the show, and Kastner took full advantage of that by parading the animal up and down the street daily. Plus, it was a wonderful exercise for Toto. Several articles that I've read mention that the two, Kastner and Toto, were practically inseparable. Now listen to this story. It happened at the Berlin Winter Garden. Kastner's huge show was brought in along with uh, Gretchen the Elephant. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me stop right there. <laughs> this story comes from Sergeant Arthur Leroy, and he was stationed in Germany at the time, but clearly... Uh, has the elephant's name wrong, as her real name was Toto. But this is how it was printed up in the Sphinx. So from now on, I'll say Toto. Okay, Toto was housed in the basement on the off hours of the show of the Berlin Winter Garden. Part of the basement was also leased to a local market for storage, and at that time, they were storing sacks of onions. Unknown to all, Toto, the vanishing elephant, was eating the onions at night. Well, fast forward to showtime, and Toto is on the stage, and they're preparing for the vanishing elephant, and old Toto passes gas right there on stage. This next part is a quote from the article in The Sphinx. The Berlin Board of Health condemned the house, and it took three days to fumigate the place. <laughs> I guess they must have changed the name of the act from the vanishing elephant to the lingering elephant. Ah, from an article in The Mum, March 2007, page 74, describes the last days of Toto. Apparently, in 1939, she was asleep on her side when an air raid took place. It scared her so much that she got up on her feet and remained standing for the next couple years. Even when she slept, she slept standing at that point. In 1941, the Kastner company was back in Berlin and Toto was back in her home 
familiar surroundings. One night she laid down like she had done many times earlier. In the morning when Kastner was feeding his animals, he went in to see Toto, but she was struggling to stand. The article said she had forgotten how to get up. Every effort was made to lift the animal. Veterinarians and zookeepers were brought in, but it was hopeless. The animal was in a state of near exhaustion. An unfortunate decision had to be made. Kastner and his family hid in the house while the poor animal was put down. The aftermath of this was that the elephant meat was sold off to factory workers. The article said that the meat was much needed in this time period. It was during the war, and it was actually considered a delicacy. The family remained forever devastated. Other items in Kastner's show included the Mignon Illusion, which according to something I found online was built by Conradi, though looking at the construction of the Mignon, it really strikes me as a potential Ernest Thorne invention maybe built by Conradi. Now, I could be wrong on that, but it sure has the feel of a Thorne Illusion. One feature that is uh, interesting is something called the Mioma man or machine, which was one of those clunky golem-type illusions. It looked like uh, it looked mechanical from the outside. It had an artificial female head on top, but it had doors, and doors would open, and you could see the inner workings and the gears and things. And then when it was sufficiently proven that no one could be inside the device, suddenly two arms would reach through the sides and begin to demonstrate some magic. But that's not where it ended. Castor would then go into the audience and borrow objects from people, and the golem would be able to identify every object. It was a telepathy act combined with the golem illusion. Another feature of Kastner's show was the man in the can. This was a large milk can in the style of Houdini's, except you could stand up in it. And I'm not sure if the contraption was ever filled with water, however, but it made for a very striking poster. In 1938, Kastner was elected Dean of German Magicians. Curiously, in the 1930s, during various club reports, it's listed that both uh, Alois Kastner and a magician by the name of Helmut Schreiber uh, were both performing. Helmut would later go on to become Kalanag after World War II. And there's been much conjecture about Kalanag's role in the fate of Kastner. Basically, before World War II, Kalanag had no big show to speak of. And after World War II, he comes out with this enormous show of illusions and theatrical properties. Looking over photos of Kalanag's show, honestly, it does not look anything like Kastner's. Uh, the magic is different. The costumes are different. Uh, and thanks to a wonderful audio lecture by magic historian William Rauscher, he points out that it's not likely Kastner's show, uh, that Kastner's show became Kalanag's, but rather Helmut Schreiber had other means by which he created his show, which I'll save for another day. So then the question comes up, what happened to Kastner's show? Well, well, we must backtrack history just a little bit. As the Nazis moved into Germany, it became harder and harder for people of Jewish descent to work and eventually to live. Kastner at first downsized his show. 
to a much more manageable property. Here again, an article by Arthur Leroy. This is a curious piece that may give some clue as to the actual whereabouts of Kastner's big show. It was written, again, by Sergeant Arthur Leroy in the Linking Ring, July 1945. It says, So here we are in Ulm, Germany, waiting for the next move in the chess game of war, which... Move prevented me from sending in my column for the June issue. In happier times, I'd be sending you reviews of the Kastner show, the one-time German magic show Deluxe. This was one of the world's most gigantic magical enterprises. It moved on 16 railroad cars, carried elephants, lions, horses, tons of illusions. With the advent of the Nazis, Kastner reduced it to a simple floor show act, but somewhere here is the original Kastner show in storage. That is, it is stored if the warehouse still stands, but there is precious little standing here. The war years are a bit blank in the Kastner history. I do know that some of his Jewish employees were helped out of the country by fellow artists. In some cases, he paid to have these folks sent off to safety. But Kastner himself appears to have stayed in Germany and was left untouched as he appears to be Jewish. I, at least that's what I've, one article or two articles make a, just a short mention of that. Um, I'm not even 100% sure of that, but that's what it says. This is a story worth telling, but I can't find the information. I do know there appears to be a book uh, that's being written about Kastner by a German author, so perhaps one day this very valuable information will be revealed. Hugard's Magic Monthly in 1956 has another article by Arthur Leroy where he mentions that the word was that various Germans told him because of Kastner's Jewish persecution, he committed suicide. This was one of many rumors that turned out to not be true. A February 1958 issue of The Linking Ring, it's revealed that Kastner was very much alive and living in the Soviet zone. He actually did make a short comeback after the war, but decided at the age of 65 to retire from the stage. His farewell performance was in Berlin at the Friedrichstadtpalast in August of 1954. Kastner's wife, Erna, died in Berlin in 1966 at the age of 67. He lived on until January 1970. He was 83 years old when he passed away. Alois Kastner had two daughters, Elvira, born in 1913, and was a valuable part of the Kastner show for many years. She passed away in 1979. His youngest daughter was born in 1916, and she too became part of the family extravaganza. Alois Kastner was often referred to as the Thurston of Germany because his show was comparable in size to that of Thurston's. Before working on this podcast, I knew... Very little about Kastner. I do own one of his wonderful lithographs, however, but it wasn't until I was contacted by his grandson that the interest kind of really sparked with me. His grandson sent me a photo of a small statue of Kastner, his grandfather, and I suddenly became fascinated with the man. The research has been a challenge. There's not as much written about Kastner in uh, the American periodicals. There's a little bit... Um, 
course, AskAlexander.com was valuable in that regard, but I was also able to find some European archive sites, which sort of fleshed in a lot of the stuff that was missing. And as I've said, there's a big part of his story that hasn't been told, so I hope that the uh, the upcoming book deals with those episodes and um, really fleshes his life out more. Well, my friends, I hope you have enjoyed the life of Zaubermeister Alois Kastner. If you have, please like the podcast in any manner which you can, which your podcasting device allows. And if you're so willing and you think we deserve it, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts is appreciated. If nothing else, please spread the word and share the podcast with others. Oh, by the way, I uh, early on, I mentioned that story about my friend, uh, that did the Blackstone impression with Nick Ruggiero. Um, if you're part of the Magic Detective Facebook group, I will post a picture of Nick and my friend as Blackstone there, so you can check that out for yourself. And if you're not a member of the Facebook group, not the Facebook page for the Magic Detective, but the Facebook group, please just ask to join and I will bring you in. I am Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Thank you for listening. And until next time... Be well and be safe.